1: Episode 184 of The Bowery Boys, The Flatiron Building, A Slice of New York History. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
2: Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We are celebrating our eighth year of podcasting this month. Is that unbelievable? I can't believe it. Eight years. How do we even know what a podcast was eight years ago? I don't... Did we know what a podcast was eight <laughs> years ago? We just started recording randomly and hoped that something would catch on. But Greg, I did just say episode
1: 184. That means we've recorded somehow 183 episodes
2: many of which
1: are still available on iTunes.
2: A couple of the early ones are no longer available, uh, Mm. because they were... Due to quality concerns. (laughs) But we thought for our two shows this month, we thought we would revisit a couple of those old classics and check in again on those histories... We've been sort of, you know, thumbing
1: through the dusty archives, looking for good topics. And this one is of particular interest to us because it's re-examining the subject of one of New York's most iconic landmarks.
2: That is, of course, the Flatiron Building, the three-sided, triangular, and highly photogenic Gilded Age skyscraper near Madison Square Park. It is almost unquestionably, I would say, one of the most romantic landmarks in New York City.
1: And why do you think that is? Well, I guess we'll be discussing that in this show. What is it about that building that makes it so romantic to us
2: today? Have we just been conditioned to thinking that this particular building is romantic? Well, I think it embodies a certain... Bygone Age, you know, it's it was constructed in 1902. Its architecture is a bit of a novelty. It's a very clever-looking building and even a little mysterious. We'll take a look at those issues as we trace this from its construction in 1902 to those who occupied the building in the preceding decades.
1: Not to mention that the building's still with us today and still filled with tenants who live with every day some of the idiosyncrasies of how this building was constructed. And those are just the idiosyncrasies felt inside the building. We will also be examining some of the, shall we say natural occurrences that
2: happen outside and around the building. For this is a windy history, not Mm. just because the architect is from the windy city, but because of the spectacular gusts that have defined the building, especially in the 1920s. So join us as we iron out the story of the Flatiron
1: Building, New York's most photogenic landmark. All right, Greg. Well, so here we are talking about the Flatiron Building like like everybody in the world knows what the Flatiron Building is and where it's located in Manhattan. Maybe we should pull back for a second here and
2: situate the listener. I'll bet that most people have seen the Flatiron building, but it is true that they may not be able to place it on a map. I actually have two things that I want to situate both the location of the Flatiron and the time frame in which it would be built. Ooh, tricky. Mm-hmm. Double situate. Yeah, okay. double situate. The Flatiron is located on a triangular plot of land that is an unusual looking block. It's the entire block between 22nd and 23rd Street, and it's framed by Broadway and Fifth Avenue. So that would be Fifth Avenue to its western
1: side, and right. Broadway from its eastern side.
2: Right. Now, this is, of course, formed by Broadway. Broadway is the reason that we have these triangular blocks, because it runs diagonally through Manhattan's grid system. So without Broadway, we would never have these charming little triangular blocks which of course have given us all sorts of wonderful places in New York City from Times Square, Herald Square... And we've talked
1: about this extensively. In fact, I have a podcast on the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which formed this grid system north of Houston Street. Broadway's really the only north-south thoroughfare that's allowed to break this grid.
2: And it's at these major intersections that these plazas are then created, these triangular plazas. Right, where Broadway hits the avenue and a major street. Uh And here it hits Fifth Avenue. So also, I should add, 23rd Street here is a major two-way traffic thoroughfare. There's also this additional plaza in front of the Flatiron, which, of course, allows viewers of the building to drink in all these curious angles of the building. So that's the where. Let's get to the when. The Flatiron opened in 1902. And this area of Madison Square, this whole area around here, was going through some major changes at this time. For decades, all of this surrounding area had townhouses of the wealthy elite who had lived on Fifth Avenue and lived around the park. But by the time of our story, this was becoming more of a commercial district. You know, you down on Broadway and across 23rd Street and over on 6th Avenue, you had a procession of department stores, which was called Ladies' Mile. And it was so dominant, the, these department stores, these lavish, huge buildings, that it actually defined the direction of the neighborhood going forward. So now I want to do something as sort of unique. I want to give you a 3D tour oh. of life here on Madison Square in the year nineteen hundred. So imagine the streetcars and the horse and carriages and the newsies that are on the corners here. So I want you to, in your mind, stand where the Flatiron Building is today at its narrowest part, right? Mm -hmm. The part that's facing 23rd Street, right? Right. So just stand there. Yes, on the point. Stand on the point as I whisk you back in time 115 years ago. So if you're standing and you're looking north, you're just looking at the vista, you're going to see five things that are going to catch your eye. One of them, of course, is the park, Madison Square Park, which opened in 1847. Now there was no Shake Shack back then. There were no <laughs> fancy art installations, but the layout of the park kind of resembles what it looks like today, which is pretty extraordinary. The park you would have seen in 1900. Okay. Now peeking over that. So if you're if you're looking sort of east, mm-hmm. and you're looking over, you may see something behind the park. You'll notice something that is peeking over the top of the trees mm-hmm. there. You'll it's in fact one of New York's most famous buildings, Madison Square Garden, which opened in 1890, so it's only a decade old in this diorama that I'm painting here. This Madison Square Garden was designed by Stanford White. It's that gorgeous Italian tower, just absolutely beautiful, topped, of course, with a controversial weather vane in the shape of the nude goddess Diana, which people would have seen and would have caused quite a bit of ruckus in 1900. And perhaps you could have seen it from this
1: little point here at the the tip of... uh of the intersection? You would have
2: seen her whirling about on a windy day. Now, let's look straight up Fifth Avenue here, right? Okay. So that is the western border of the park. Today, I guess when you look up there, you'd, you'd right away notice the Empire State Building. Right. Well, of course, that would be decades into the future. Right. What instead you would have seen is something that's no longer there. It's called the Dewey Arch, it was a wartime monument that was built in 1899 in honor of the Admiral George Dewey. It actually has a less ornate twin sitting down in Washington Square Park. So, if you can imagine that arch, right. throw that arch over Fifth Avenue, like around 25th Street.
1: And this was in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Traffic would have
2: to pass around it would or under it. Would pass through it. it. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, but you know, keep back then it was horses and carriages types it wasn't so they you know could fit
1: through yeah with there were
2: no yeah there were no hondas back then <laughs> hondas <laughs> i don't know that's such a random <laughs> <laughs> they actually tore it down in 1900 so we're seeing it at oh. the tail end here now right next to that is something we have talked about on the show before a curious obelisk that was placed here in 1857. This is another war themed monument. This one to General William Jenkins Worth, who is actually interred underneath it. So Worth is here. This monument is actually there in 1900. And finally, just to the west of the monument. Okay, so I'm looking out to the left. You have perhaps one of the most famous places of the Gilded Age on the northwest corner of 23rd Street. This would be the Fifth Avenue Hotel, one of the centers of social and political dealings back in the heyday. Now, it was built by a dry goods millionaire named Amos Richard Eno. It was constructed in the 1850s. 1850, people were mocking him because he's like building this really fancy hotel and people weren't really living up here. They never thought that high society would come up here to 23rd Street, but by 1900, the center of social activity had actually passed through and beyond 23rd Street.
1: That's what I was just going to ask you, because if (laughs) we're standing here at 1900, Mm -hmm. it seems to me like the the heyday of the Fifth Avenue Hotel was probably a couple decades behind us, right? So, not to say that it was a shabby place, but society had moved up more
2: around Longacre Square, right? 47? let's just what you're trying to say is it was passé at this time and it was in fact it would be torn down in nineteen oh eight.
1: All right. So you just took us on this big situate all the way from east to west, but how about like what's right behind us? Because
2: this (laughs) last time I checked that is
1: the subject of today's
2: podcast. Well, you know, I I just wanted to do a little panoramic tour. Can we turn around? Yes, now we'll turn around and what you'll you'll see a series of smaller buildings here. Now Eno, the man who owned the Fifth Avenue Hotel, well Mm -hmm. he also owned this triangular block. It's a weird-looking block, right? I mean, it, definitely. It's, it's pretty small. It's actually quite small and quite narrow. It had a couple nicknames, at least th- from things that I was reading, various sources. One of them would call it the cow catcher. A cow catcher. Could you explain to me this agricultural term? Well, that's the nose on the locomotive. There's nothing agricultural about this. Oh. It's the nose on the locomotive that basically pushes things off of the track. Oh. The other nickname, and the one that gives the building its name today, is, of course, the flat iron block, because it looked like one of those old-style irons, you know, as an iron clothes. And, you know, it's also like a flat iron is also like a hugely unpopular playing piece in the game of Monopoly. It's the one you didn't want to play.
1: Right. So <laughs> just for people who yes. might not be familiar with antiques or remember flat irons, <laughs> these were irons that before there was electricity you would set on top of the stove in the mm-hmm. kitchen, heat them up, and then iron out your clothes. Right. It would.
2: They would absorb some of the heat. And so you right. could just grab the top of it and do your daily chores. And they say it looks like a flat Iron or a wedge, mm-hmm. but in
1: fact, it is not an even triangle. You know, where both sides of the triangle are equal. Like Broadway is much longer, and actually, the Fifth Avenue and Twenty Second Street sides form a right angle. So it's actually it's a. You see what I'm you yeah. see what I'm making here with my I, hands. I didn't realize it was
2: going to be math here, Tom.
1: No, and I'm not really one, but it's just it's not sure, a perfect yeah, triangle per- like a flat.
2: so it's kind of a misnomer. Right. It's an imperfect nickname. Now on this plot of land. On the wide side of the block the was The 22nd Street. The 22nd side. Street side was an apartment house called the Cumberland that was 7 stories tall. In front of it, so on the thinner side of the block, there were just small 3-story buildings, and there could have hardly been very many anyway, right? There's just not that much space. No, there. no, they they were very tiny unimpressive buildings. Nothing to write home about, of course, except for one curious feature. So that Cumberland was so much taller than the others, and that one side facing north was flat and blank. There's no windows or anything there. Mm -hmm. So Eno used this opportunity to place advertisements there. Seems natural, like billboards and things like that. So in 1892... On the Cumberland here, there was a real estate sign advertising homes in Brooklyn. Manhattan Beach, swept by ocean breezes. This is a very important sign in signage history, Tom, because it is the first electric sign in New York City history. Obviously, that would change the fate of another neighborhood, as New Yorkers took a liking to the concept of electronic signs. But they would move it up, along with the theater district, up to Longacre Square, which soon would be renamed Times Square. Although these would not be there for long, of course, because New York is changing. By 1900, it's already caught the fever for the development of skyscrapers. Now, that had already transformed downtown Manhattan into this wonderful forest of great architecture. In fact, the tallest building in the world in 1900 is actually in New York, down by City Hall. It's the Park Row building, which is still with us today. Interestingly, there's sort of a rivalry going on between New York and, of course, Chicago, where where many great architects and architectural firms are coming from. And they are experimenting and doing wonderful things in architectural design and revolutionizing the building of skyscrapers.
1: Right. They were using steel in innovative new ways to build buildings taller than ever before, and there's a good reason for that, which I'll get to in one second. But first, to come back to this little triangular piece of land. This was owned until 1899 by Mr. Eno, who you mentioned. When he passed away in 1899, the land goes up for sale. At the same time, there's a sort of real estate mania gripping the city, right? Because... Developers are starting to build taller structures downtown and seeing the real possibility of renting out more space. You could rip places down, build it taller, and, well, double or triple or quadruple your rentable space. There's a lot of money riding on this property. First, they try to sell this land for $3 million. Okay. To the city. To the city of New to York. To the city. But that seemed like an unheard of sum, so some (laughs) reporters sort of sniffed around and figured out that it was actually sort of crooked Tammany Hall politics at play here. And that three million dollars would actually end up in terms of a lot of kickbacks in some Tammany politicians' pockets. So that went down the tubes and instead it was sold to Eno's son, William, for six hundred and ninety thousand dollars, which is still a lot of money in nineteen hundred. But then he flipped it around quickly and sold it to the New House Brothers, who are not a pop band.
2: They are they <laughs> the are New- The New House Brothers, I do have their last album though.
1: <laughs> Didn't they do um <laughs> These Newhouse brothers had made a fortune in mining out west, and they bought the property for $801,000. And then they turned around almost immediately and sold it to Harry Black, who was the president of the Chicago-based Fuller Company. And here we go. This is the main thrust of today's story. This... Land is owned by the Fuller Company.
2: So who's the Fuller Company? Where are they from? Are they from Chicago? Are they from New York? So they're based in
1: Chicago. Now, remember that Chicago had suffered a terrible fire, the Great Fire of 1871, which resulted in countless buildings being uh, destroyed and then needing to be rebuilt. So Chicago, because of that, had this new playing field to experiment with architecture and new building techniques. Among them was this new form of steel construction that New York's construction companies were a little bit fearful of experimenting with. So here we have Chicago that's leading the way in this new kind of steel frame architecture taking risks that made it much easier and much faster and even cheaper to construct much taller buildings they had been doing this for years new york however was still building these tall buildings with very thick walls using masonry So very thick walls at the bottom getting you know skinnier the walls would get skinnier as the building went up but that made it much slower and much more costly not to mention it somewhat limited how high the buildings could go it wouldn't be until 1892 when New York would change its fire code
2: making it easier than ever to construct using steel frames. So this was the wave of the future here, the way the new way to make these tall buildings. Right. These were much taller and
1: they could go up much faster, plus with the introduction of a new safer elevator, suddenly most of the concerns about these new structures was wiped away. There still was a lingering concern about the fire safety. Remember that New York and all of these big cities had been ravaged by fire, including, obviously, Chicago. So fire codes were something that was of utmost concern. There just wasn't enough evidence that these new buildings were strong enough and that they'd hold up under the heavy temperatures produced by a fire. But by 1900, the city had basically given the go-ahead, and Fuller decided to expand their business from Chicago to New York. They saw a huge opportunity here to develop bigger buildings. This was still where most of the country's big businesses were based. The city was going through giant waves of immigration, and land
2: values were skyrocketing. So it seemed like the building should skyrocket with them. And the architects and the construction firms of Chicago had a a unique talent— because for the past 20 years, they had been employing this form of construction.
1: Right, especially the Fuller company. Now George Fuller, the founder of the company, died in 1897. His successor was a man named Harry Black, who got to his position at the company the old-fashioned way. He married it. He married <laughs> That's George- the easiest way to the top in the Gilded Age. So in the case of Harry Black, he's now the director of the company. He's a bit of a gambler. He comes to New York City full of enthusiasm and a lot of connections because Fuller was huge in Chicago. They were certainly known in New York. And he started forging business relationships all over the city and then all over the country, creating basically a construction trust. The Fuller company was the first big company in New York that was developing these properties all in one they were an all in one shop they'd get the the land they'd hire the engineers and the architects they'd get the people to build the thing they'd get the designers they'd get the materials they'd get the thing up and then they'd even lease out the space inside so they were doing this all over the city, not just here. And in fact, for this particular parcel of land, Mr. Black had his eye on it to become his new headquarters. He wanted not to occupy the entire building, because it was going to be 20 stories high, Mm -hmm. but at least
2: some space inside, and meanwhile rent the rest out to uh, other paying tenants. It's interesting that he saw the potential in this particular pot of land, given its unusual shape but they were dreaming big and they had the skills and talent to do it i think it also
1: presented a little bit of a challenge
2: you know people were talking about this wedge of
1: land it was still in something of a prominent spot and what were they going to do right if fuller was coming in and he was building other big skyscrapers what was he going to do
2: on this little piece of land? And to keep in mind that most of the skyscrapers in New York are in downtown Manhattan, but there's this whole area that's just ripe for possible development up here around the square.
1: Black hired a famous Chicago-based architect named Daniel Burnham to design the new building. Burnham was probably the most famous architect in Chicago and one of the most famous architects in the entire country. He had had great success in taking on the construction of the 1893 World Columbian Exhibition in Chicago.
2: And he brought in New York architects like McKim, Mead, and White, for instance. I mean, this was the World's Fair that basically gave us the Beaux-Arts style, or at least everyone who came from this fair brought back to their cities with them this certain ornate European style. So Burnham designs this building, right?
1: This 20-story building and designed it in the Italian palazzo style with beaux-arts styling like you said he would base it on the tripartite design greg do you know the tripartite design um enlighten me please well it's a it's Three parts, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Taking inspiration from a classical Greek column. So imagine a classical Greek column. Now abstract that design, those three sections, and apply it to a triangular-shaped building. And, and then gussy it up with lots of Beaux-Arts details and finery and frill, and you've kind of got the flat iron building. In this case, the base of the column is a three-story, limestone-covered base, right? Very Mm -hmm. rustic. Then there's a longer shaft of the column.
2: The main body of the building.
1: The main body, Mm -hmm. right? In this case, along Fifth Avenue and along Broadway. Really less dressed up, but there's some undulating bay windows that add some interest. And it's crowned at the top like the capital of a column with an intricately designed cornice. Aside from that limestone covered base, most of the rest of the facade would be done in a glazed terracotta. It would fired clay that would give the building's designers some more liberty to play with, and they could make it the perfect color. they could add much more ornamentation and fire it up.
2: well essentially it's the same material as like housewares right I mean ceramic well, just it's a ceramic. I
1: think it's stronger than your average coffee mug. <laughs> right. And one of the benefits of it being all fired up was the fact that it was pretty much fireproof. So this is a very durable, safe structure. And, and that was one of the reasons that they chose to use this, aside from the fact that it gave it a pretty color and allowed them to be more intricate. It also offered some fireproofing.
2: This is a very clever method of building, this, building the tripartite because it's so narrow that there are certain angles where it actually does look very slender, like a column completely In fact, I
1: think that's one of the discerning features of the building, is that it looks different from every angle, right? I was just walking around it today, and I was noticing that as you come down from the north, if you're heading down Fifth Avenue looking at it, it can give the illusion that it's actually coming toward you.
2: In other angles, it appears as if it's two-dimensional.
1: Right. Like, if you're coming from Madison Square Park and you look over Mm -hmm. to it, it almost looks like a curtain. Mm -hmm. But if you're walking up Fifth Avenue... And it's up to your northeast as you're walking up Fifth Avenue looking at it. When it's tucked behind other buildings along the street, it gives the appearance of being a very big, sturdy mm-hmm. building until you get about a block and a half away from it. Then all of a sudden you notice how narrow it is. And, and so it's just changing all the time. The building is 20 or 21 stories tall. It's a little bit confusing because they would add a story they add later. add a story later, right. 285 feet tall there are more than 700 windows in this building the windows themselves are actually a little bit small they could have gone bigger with these windows but because there were concerns about the safety of the building not just about its steel construction but because they were going so tall in this tiny little spot there were concerns that when the wind came along the whole thing could just fall over So one of the optical illusions employed is to make the windows a little bit smaller, and it gives the effect that the building is actually heavier and more anchored into the ground. At that tip, right, where we were standing at the corner of 5th and 23rd and Broadway, if you turned around and you looked at those corner offices, those are called the point office by tenants past and present. The front of the building there is only six and a half feet across. That makes for a very narrow, though... Highly coveted office space. Oh yeah, inside. it's very
2: powerful to sit at a desk that's right there because you have you see the whole city layout right in front of you.
1: Yes, and these days you see the Empire State Building mm-hmm. basically from every single floor.
2: All right, so this spot that we were standing earlier when I was doing the three D panorama tour, mm-hmm. in fact, when you stand there today, the first floor actually kind of juts out a little bit, right? It's not exactly even with the rest of the building.
1: Oh, you're talking about the iron and glass extension that reaches out to a point. Yeah. The only thing that points in the whole building... That was not in the original plan of Burnham's. That was, in fact, added much to Burnham's consternation by his boss, in this case, Harry Black, who wanted to increase the ground floor rentable space. It drove Black crazy because he was all about numbers. He was all about renting this thing out. And it drove him crazy that it was designed, you know, in the Chicago style with those sort of curvy angles at every corner. There are no real hard corners. But that limited the rentable retail space because the bottom floor was all shops. So Black forced Burnham to incorporate this extra little extension, which is very obviously an add-on to it. Next time you're there, turn around and really look because you'll see that this little addition juts out in front of classical columns that are right behind it. It kind of like cuts right into columns on the facade, and those same columns are repeated at the very top of the cornice. So
2: this clearly did a number on Burnham's intentions. (laughs) I think it's one of the most interesting parts of the building, oddly enough, because it's such an unusual space that, you know, you can't do everything in this sort of narrow little space, but you can, you know...
1: Well, you could sell cigars... And they did yep. for a long time. Yep. So there, they had a cigar
2: <laughs> shop. So when exactly did the Flatiron Building open? Because it was under construction for a long period of time. It was behind a lot of scaffolding, so people didn't even really know what it was going to look like. Well, construction started at the end of 1901 and would be wrapped up
1: by November of 1902. Once they had proven that, in fact, the building wasn't going to fall over, Um, they had to bring in (laughs) you know extra engineers to prove to the city that the steel skeleton could, in fact, withstand gusts. That something could actually stand here, right. But the building didn't open maybe in the majestic way that you were expecting. Really, it opened by spraying a bunch of hoses about. In (laughs) in this case, in November 16th of 1902, the final test came. When the fire department arrived, they needed to prove that if fire broke out on an upper floor, that the water pressure was strong enough to get all the way up there. So the engineers went to work on that. The New York Times reported on November 17, 1902, Water Exhibition in a Skyscraper headline. Early risers in the neighborhood of Madison Square yesterday witnessed a spectacular exhibition by members of the fire department under the direction of Chief Croker in the Flatiron Building at Broadway 5th and 23rd Street. From many windows of each story above the 13th and from the roof... Thousands upon thousands of gallons of water were squirted to the street "'until Broadway from 23rd Street to 21st Street had a rushing stream of water. "'The use of hose was for the purpose of ascertaining the water pressure at the top of the building. "'Many of the Sunday strollers believed at first that the structure was on fire, "'and there was some excitement in neighboring hotels. "'Then those who knew that it was a test of the standpipes in the building... And were interested in firefighting, enlarged the crowd till it numbered into the thousands <laughs> So there were
2: thousands of people who were interested in firefighting watching from the streets.: So there was not a proper grand opening, but it sounds like there was definitely a christening of the Flatiron building.: Yes, it's water broke. So the Flatiron Building is born. New York has a new office building. But what they may not realize is that they've also just gotten a brand new icon. We'll get to the story of the myth and romance of the Flatiron Building after the commercial break.
1: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. And now,
2: back to the show.
1: All right, Craig. So we left off by reading this news clipping from the New York Times about uh, the fire department giving the thumbs up for the building to open.
2: So I'm also going to read from a news clip. This one from a few months earlier, from June 29th, 1902. And it was the week that some of the scaffolding came down. Oh. So people finally got to see what this building was really going to look like. So this is from the New York Tribune. Quote, The Flatiron Building at the intersection of Broadway, Fifth Avenue, and 23rd Street is a marvel of tall building construction. Since the removal last week of the scaffolding, which partially concealed the outlines, there's scarcely an hour which a staring wayfarer doesn't, by his example, gather a big crowd of other staring people— Sometimes a hundred or more, with heads bent backwards until a general breakage of necks seems imminent, (laughs) collect along the walk of the Fifth Avenue side of Madison Square and stay there until, quote, one of the finest orders them to move on. So Wow, so people were breaking necks (laughs) just to get a view of this place. People really, honestly, did not know what to make of this curious structure. I mean, it was a novelty. This would be a novelty in any city. City, right, mm. but now you have it in the middle of an area that just doesn't have that many skyscrapers, and it is super strange. Like you said, people thought that it was going to blow over. It was going to create all these massive wind gusts that was going to just bring it down and knock over that thin side. Although um, a man named Paul Starrett, who was with the Fuller Company, and had one of those narrow offices on the 18th floor well, he had to basically speak up and say, quote, Even in the heaviest gales, I have never felt a tremor in this structure. The wind has blown 90 miles an hour here, but it did not sway the steelwork one jot or tittle. Not one tittle. Not a single tittle.
1: And don't forget that, you know, today when you look at the Flatiron Building, it's surrounded by other buildings that have almost the same height. But at the time that it opened, it was the tallest
2: thing anywhere around. In fact, it must have made a certain impression on the owners of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So they had an 11-story headquarters on the south east end of Madison Park, so at Madison and 23rd Street. Which is still there today. Yeah, well, in 1905, they wanted to get into the skyscraper game, so they built an Italian-style clock tower right there, which was completed in 1909, and then became the tallest building in the world. And by 1909, you had that building, the tallest, you had Madison Square Garden, and you had the Flatiron Building. So all of a sudden, Madison Square has been transformed into this innovative skyscraper neighborhood. Okay, so the building is really cool, but it is an office building, right? And it's not just the Fuller Company's offices. No, I mean, they're certainly one of the primary tenants. And in fact, the building was officially called the Fuller Building. Not the Flatiron Building. Not the Flatiron Building, although, of course, you know that nickname pretty much adhered to it really quickly.
1: And Harry Black himself, the head of the Fuller Company, was infuriated that people from the people on the street to people even in the press would continue calling it the Flatiron Building
2: long after he kept saying, no, this is the Fuller Building. Well, yeah, he wants to get his name out there. He's paying all this money for it. It's sort of an advertisement. You know, I mean, the same thing would be done with the Chrysler Building and the Woolworth Building but we don't call them by the name of their block shapes. But the Fuller Construction Company was not, of course, the only tenant... In the building. The one that interests me the most, I think, is most interesting. This is the first headquarters for American League Baseball. Really? Yeah. So, which was formed just a couple years earlier. So, they had an office here. The newspaper publisher, Frank Muncie, who was famous for his pulp magazine, Argosy, and he owned and had his hands in a lot of newspapers, including many here in New York. So, he would be here as well and would kind of kick off this interesting, proud tradition of the Flatiron as a castle of the publishing industry, which leads up even to this day. Most of the tenants in the building today have their hands in the publishing world. There's even a nod to this, of course, in the 2002 movie Spider-Man, because they have J. Jonah Jameson and the Daily Bugle, Peter Parker's newspaper that he is a photographer for, is here in the Flatiron building.
1: Not to mention, Macmillan Press has approximately 600 employees working in this building in its various imprints, including Picador and St. Martin's.
2: Now, today, aren't there also like places to eat around the building as well, or, or like to get coffee?
1: Sure, lots of places around it you can get coffee, but I don't
2: think in the building. Oh, well, in 1905, you could actually go to a very lavish restaurant that was in the basement that could seat... 1,500 people. No, just a few... 1,500? 1, 1,500 people. I, I looked at that number three or four times. It's a huge, impressive dining room. Those people must have been eating
1: on top of each other. <laughs> Were they in bunks? How did you... Fit Was there the like a little people? tiny
2: table at like the corner in the basement? Like a, for wee little people? Well... In 1912, it was renovated and turned into a very fancy French restaurant by the name of Taverne Louis, owned by the renowned restaurateur Louis Bastanaby. Sounds fancy. The building came along right the same time as the birth of the movies. So in June of 1903, barely, not even a year old, it was the subject of a Thomas Edison moving picture. It was just a two-minute film of a static Basically a static shot just showing life on the bustling street Mm. in front of it. Trolleys rambling by. Yeah. Now, speaking of uh, the arts, this is an era of great artistic photography. There's this understanding of being able to capture an image that's not just a picture of an object, but to capture something in a unique aesthetic way. So naturally, the Flatiron Building, which presents all these extraordinary angles. Well, I mean, on film, it can translate into something very haunting and romantic.
1: Which is obvious still today. The area around the Flatiron is just crammed with people pointing Mm -hmm. their cell phones and their cameras up at it. It's a
2: tradition that's still with us today, of course. In the early years, there were actually art studios in the Flatiron building, and some of the art students could go on top of the roof and do their work there. In fact,
1: the penthouse was built above the 20th floor in order to provide these Mm -hmm. artistic garrets for the artists.
2: So, Tom, do you know the phrase 23-skidoo? Does it come up in your conversations with people? It does kind
1: of sound... It sounds familiar. 23-skidoo. The old 23-skidoo. To give somebody
2: the old 23-skidoo. Yeah, just to get out of here. Like, I gave her the old 23-skidoo. I throw him out. Yes. Now, it seems like a jazz age type of phrase, but in fact, you can find it... I just... In a cursory search, I was able to find this phrase going back to the early 1900s. It was associated with this building, obviously, because it's 23, 23rd Street, and because it was associated with the crazy wind gusts That would happen at this intersection, this very slicing wind that would disarm proper society by blowing up women's skirts here. In fact, it was known for actually having men just sort of hang around kind of lecherous men like lines of them just watching as women would turn the corner and their whoops, their skirts would just swirl up. Wait, it would swirl up because the wind was encircling the building? Right, because the it, women just weren't prepared because they would just walk down the street normally and there would be no wind, but because of the cross breezes uh-huh. of this particular building... Because like, it would sort of rip around the building and come back up? The gusts would just blow up a, a woman's skirt and sh- show off a stocking or something, which was just you just oh. was not done. In 1903, this was actually taken to court, and a judge said that... Men were allowed to stand in front of the Flatiron Building for two minutes. According to the New York World, quote, a longer time than that renders a man liable to punishment for disorderly conduct. A woman presumably may stand there as long as she likes, <laughs> So this was really a thing. Oh, yeah, it was serious. It was lampooned in all the newspapers. And so the phrase 23 Skidoo got sort of applied to this wacky antics in front of the Flatiron building.
1: And the phrase may not still necessarily be with us, but the winds are still with us. I can tell you very much. I was there today. (laughs) I ate lunch at one of those little tables that's right next to it in the pedestrian plaza that is Broadway, you know, between 22nd and 23rd Street, and a wind flipped around the building, and from the table next to me, shot
2: a chicken Caesar wrap (laughs) through the air. Oh, no. How many chicken Caesar wraps have been lost due to the winds? Well, we shouldn't joke about them, because back in the early days, people actually got injured during bad storms, and winds would frequently smash windows and rain glass fragments down onto the street. So, I mean, obviously, the buildings are made a lot more carefully today, and that doesn't happen, but that really did happen. Now, that glass storefront, that little yes. tiny... That the addition. Cow, the cow catcher, let's call it that, has been up to some curious uses over the years. It was a cigar store for a very, very long period of time and you know, also sold newspapers and things like that. In 1914, it was festooned with thousands of silver dollars, which sparkled and glittered in the sunshine, which was part of a, a newspaper promotion by the New York Tribune. A few years later... Different kind of energy came to the building in 1918. The cigar store turned into a recruitment center for the navy because, of course, this is World War One and they sold liberty bonds. But to decorate the place on top of that one story building. They placed two cannons that were aimed out over the square. Two actual military cannons. Wow. Did they ever fire them? (laughs) Well, no. They were just sort of decorative. But, I mean, they were actual usable cannons, decorated in all sorts of banners. And on the weekends, they just put a military band up there between the cannons, and they would play all day. I'm glad that Burnham designed a pretty sturdy roof on that. Oh, yeah. The man could certainly build a roof. By the 1930s, though, this neighborhood was becoming a little passe, you know? You had the domination now of Midtown Manhattan which was the center of society and entertainment. And you had these dozens of skyscrapers that were much taller than the Flatiron Mm. that were sprouting up there. Meanwhile, downtown had become the financial and business center for New York. Those stores over on Ladies Mile, those were all gone by this time. Madison Square Garden, which had, you know, delighted thousands during the Gilded Age, was closed by 1925. They moved up to the Hell's Kitchen area the Fuller Company actually ended up selling the building in 1925 for over $2 million. Which, by the way, was the
1: cost that the Fuller Company incurred in its own construction of the building 20 years previous, in 1902. So they weren't making any money. No. They were losing money on that. Sales.
2: Yeah, well, this it just this neighborhood just didn't have the same kind of energy and purpose that it had once had. But it was a solid office building. It was almost always filled with tenants throughout the 1940s and 19. 50s. I just this is an odd, completely nonsensical detail. But during the 1930s, the Metropolitan Ping Pong Society had their offices here, and it was the center of ping pong life in America. <laughs> just so, did you know that was coming? I, I had no idea you were going to
1: serve up that little detail. <laughs> Once it's sold, you know, by the Fuller Company in the in the 20s, it gets sort of traded back and forth between different groups and syndicates. It was sold in 1946 to Harry Helmsley and his company, the Flatiron Associates. He would, of course, later have Helmsley Spear, and the company would manage the building through the 1990s. But I think it's safe to say that while that was happening, the area around it also continued, if not declining, we can say at least it didn't get any more glamorous. (laughs) Right. In 1997, more than half of their interests, uh, that is, Helmsley's interests, were sold to Newmark Knight Frank, who made some improvements in the 90s. And I think it's at this time in the 90s when the Flatiron neighborhood started to get a little bit more chic as yeah. well, right?
2: Well, that park was not exactly like the finest place in the world in the mid, mid-1990s. Madison Square Madison Park. Madison Square Park. So I think once the park became a, like, a cleaner and uh, more interesting place to go, then that affected the surrounding neighborhood.
1: And on a personal level, Greg, you moved into the neighborhood not very far from the Flatiron building
2: in the mid-90s. Yeah, so my first apartment was in the neighborhood, yes. But I have a specific interesting memory of the Flatiron building because I remember walking home one late night when they were filming the movie Godzilla. Oh. Now, the Matthew Broderick Godzilla movie. Which came out in 98. Yeah. So they, so they were filming a late night scene involving a gigantic pile of fish that was sitting right in front of the Flatiron Building. So by the worst Monument, kind of bizarre. But just to see it lit up like that at late night was heavenly. I mean, I don't remember anything about the movie. I just remember the Flatiron Building.
1: That was 1998 the same year uh, I was reading in the New York Times an account of one of the McMillan employees who who stepped into one of the hydraulic elevators which were all the rage in 1902 when they were designed by the Fuller <laughs> company right these elevators operated on water you know if you needed to fix them you needed to call the plumber you didn't you didn't hmm. need to call the electrician because the water pressure was actually sending these things up and down inside the building well, he stepped into the elevator, the doors shut and one of the water pipes broke that was powering the device, flooding the elevator. I mean, this is terrifying. I hope you have like an elevator <laughs> Wait, thing. To, to I can't dr-
2: imagine. To drown in an elevator? That's like the worst thing ever.
1: Well, then it it actually went to the 3rd floor, the doors opened up automatically, and this whole like elevator full of water <laughs> and him like spilled out onto the 3rd floor. They call it the Great
2: Hydraulic Elevator Incident of in 1998. <laughs> well, I assume they've gotten that all fixed. <laughs> yes, they switched
1: they they no longer have the hydraulic elevators. Thank God. The building is protected, you know, in various ways. It was designated a New York City landmark in 1966 and then a National Historic Landmark in 1989. So that does protect it from certain things. Now, I think that we quite like the fact, you know, that Macmillan has all of these publishing folk inside the building. Yeah, it's it all that. kind of like mm-hmm. it feels right. However, it also seems that this is an uncertain time for the building, for a majority stake in the building was purchased in 2009 by the Sorgente Group, which is an Italian investment company that operates luxury hotels
2: and historic buildings around the world. Oh, you're kidding. So please don't tell me they're going to convert this into a luxury boutique hotel. Well, that seems to be the
1: plan right now, although... As of just this year, in an interview in the Times, they are still open to Macmillan staying in the building when their leases come up in 2018. So don't like get ready to check into the hotel yet because (laughs) Macmillan's still there through 2018. But it seems certain that they're going to make some modifications to the building. Because still to this day, and you and I have been in that building, we've visited yeah. different fantastic offices mm-hmm. up on different floors. And, you know, it's still Id- idiosyncratic. You walk through the central corridor, the layout of the the rooms is a
2: little bit funny. Yeah, the interior isn't perfect.
1: No, it isn't the open plan that's so, like, <laughs> right. the rage and you know, all of the office buildings today. This is still kind of a funny old-fashioned building inside, although they have spectacular views and lots of light from every single office in there. So I can't help but be somewhat saddened by the thought of not only losing a giant publishing tenant in this building and having that purpose behind the building, but also kind of, you know, making it super chic and
2: sort of modern and banal. We just have a lot of those right now in New York. But as you sort of inferred earlier... Although there is, I don't think, any scientific study that has claimed this, it is, in fact, one of the most photographed buildings in New York to this day, and now there's more cameras to do it. And it still has this allure and mystery to people, the same as it did 110 years ago.
1: Speaking of photographs and books, Greg, you and I both enjoyed reading the book The Flatiron, the New York landmark and the incomparable city that arose with it by Alice Sparberg-Alexu. And this is a book that came out just a couple years ago. It's a great chronicle of the building of this New York icon, the company behind it, all the characters behind it, all the fun stories surrounding it. And it's a book released by a publishing company that's in the building, St. Martin's Press. Right. Another book that I was looking at in researching this that I picked up at the library is simply called Flatiron by Peter Willem Kreitler. And this is an oversized book that features on the right side of every page a photograph, famous or not famous, of the building. And then on the left side, a little bit of prose, be it a snippet of text from an article or a story or a poem relating to the Flatiron building. And when I was taking this book out of the library, you know, you check out the book and then you have to pass through security mm-hmm. at the mid-Manhattan mm-hmm. library. So when I showed it to the, the woman working security, she looked at it and look at this cover. what do you see?
2: Well, it's a close-up of the narrow side of the Flatiron building.
1: Right. It's a close-up of maybe shows like six or seven floors. Mm-hmm. She looked at this. She didn't just say, all right, go ahead. She said... That's not a good photo. (laughs) I said, said, really? And she said, no, if you're going to photograph this building, you you got to be back at least a block to take in the whole building. I said, oh, thank you. Thanks for that advice. And I left, and I thought to myself, ain't that just the truth, Greg? Everybody's got an opinion about how to look at the Flatiron Mm -hmm. building and how to fit it into a
2: photo. Well, hopefully, she will check out our blog, boweryboyshistory.com, where I will have two dozen superb photographs of the Flatiron Building, courtesy of our fine New York archival institutions. If you're a patron of the show and you've joined us with your support from
1: even just a dollar a month through patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, that's patreo dot com slash Bowery Boys, we will have lots of extra audio clips, outtakes from this show, because I can tell you... We recorded for far too long, so we have lots more stories for our patrons. Thanks again for being part of our team and for your support.
2: You can also check out the Bowery Boys on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram, where I am documenting some of the research that's being done on the upcoming Bowery Boys book. We cannot wait to tell you more about it. So thanks for helping us iron out
1: this story, and actually, thanks to our new Bowery Boys intern, Dan Plummer... Who is helping out with the editing of this show, among other things, for his help coming up with that ironing out (laughs) pun at the top of the show?
2: Thank you, thank you. So, thanks for listening and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.